Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl and she works in a No my Haido Ma Kiara and welcome to Books and Beyond. This is your host Alison and I'm joined by the award-winning crime novelist Paul Cleave. And now Paul's on the line from Christchurch. Kia ora, Paul. Hi Alison, how's it going up there? Look, it's great up here, thanks. Thank you so much for being with us today. That's no problem. Paul has just released his latest novel, which is his 12th, and it's called The Quiet People and it's published by Upstart Press. So congratulations, Paul. Thanks. Now, look, I've, I've just read the book. It is so good. I just couldn't put it down. So um, I'm just going to uh, describe the book in about a, a paragraph for our listeners. Um, sure. So don't worry, I won't spoil anything for them. You're already off to a good start. The fact that you liked it, this is my favourite interview. Oh, good. Now, I think everyone will. So now the book is set in Christchurch and it follows a successful husband and wife crime writing duo whose child goes missing in mysterious circumstances. Now, the couple's long-running joke that if anyone could get away with murder, it would be a crime writer or indeed a pair of crime writers. Uh, This joke comes back to haunt them because they quickly become prime suspects in their son's disappearance dot, dot, dot. So it's so compelling. Paul, I was wondering if we could start off. Um, I wanted to ask you some questions about Christchurch, your your hometown. So um, all of your your novels are set in Christchurch, and as we know, it's a beautiful city, but it does have quite a dark underbelly. And I'm wondering if we'd be correct in describing your writing as, as Christchurch noir. Yeah, I think that's a that's actually a pretty good term, and, and weirdly, it's a it's a term that some of my international publishers have been using uh, over the last few years as well. But Christchurch definitely does have a, a dark underbelly. I mean, I've seen it, I've experienced it. You know, just I remember walking home from town one night with a couple of friends, and these like there were three of us and about fifteen skinheads just had a beating the crap out of us. Things like that have really informed my um, my, my feeling of, of Christchurch, and, and you sort of put those things into the book. And you know, it is a it is a dark it is a dark city. Yeah, it's a, a real city of contrasts, isn't it? So um, I guess would would it be those sort of things that make Christchurch so ideal as a setting in your books? Yeah, I mean, I mean the other thing is that. You know, if you're writing a crime novel, and ultimately, like Christchurch is my favourite city. Like I've, you know, I've travelled a lot. It's it's my home. I would never want to live anywhere else but Christchurch. So I so I do love it. But it does have, you know, it has its good and it has its bad. But if you're writing a crime novel where horrible things are happening, you know, happening, it's got to have that kind of dark backdrop to, um, you know, you're trying to pull the reader into this kind of horrible universe and. You know, having Christchurch as a bad Christchurch is all, all part of that. Yeah, I guess I guess that's right because it would be hopeless if you were if you'd made your your city Shangri La or some mythical perfect place, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. If, if everyone's getting on and everyone's happy and the weather's always good, it's like, well, that's not really much of a much of a crime novel. <laughs> that's right. Now, Christchurch 
holds a, a lot of trauma um, in its recent past. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can describe for us the thinking that goes into any decision about whether you include the earthquakes or do you include the terror attack in your fictional Christchurch. Yeah, actually, you know what? There's not a lot of thinking involved there at all. I just don't do it. It's just... Um Especially the, the the earthquakes, like even you know, even all these years later, it's still not something I I want to put in the books. That's not saying that other people can't do that. Like I know a lot of people, uh, they do base books around you know historical events or actual current events or whatever. That's just that's just not my thing. Um, you know, I um, I also had a, a timeline issue with the books as well, um, where the first I think seven or eight books all kind of happen within the space of a year. So you couldn't suddenly, you know, by book five or book six, have a character go, hey, you remember that earthquake none of us mentioned five books ago? Oh, right. Look, look at this building, it's fallen down. So that wasn't going to work anyway. But but even so, it's just, you know, I mean, so many people have been hurt by, by that, by the shooting, and, and to sort of just, you know, I don't want to um, put that into a book to try to, because um, ultimately a crime novel, you're trying to entertain people. You know, but I'm not going to put those kind of things in there um, when when people have, have suffered so much. So, and the other thing is, is you know, I, I should be able to come up with other things. I should be able to create a different universe. I should be able to create things that don't rely on on those. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Thanks for that. Now, in terms of your writing technique, you know, I was hooked from the first page. You know, from about the first sentence um, and I just couldn't put the book down and um, I think this is a great skill that you have and I've been trying to work out how how you make a book unput downable um, and I'm you know I've been wondering if it's to do with the length and the pace of your sentences and and chapters but so I'm kind of wanting to ask you how you do it but I know you can't give away your trade secrets. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I, I don't really think about anymore. Like you, you do want short, punchy, sort of um, sentences. You, you know, like you you sort of write for for what the pace is at that at that time. You know, you've always got to keep in mind. Okay, well, this is an action scene. Now's not the time to sort of you know, remind people who some, what somebody looks like, or you know, or or what this house looks like. You know, you're always trying to like get in and out of a scene quite quickly. Um, so I do try to have. Punchy, uh, punchy scenes, shorter chapters, and in, in some cases, but not all cases. Like I mean, you you're not always writing an, an actiony kind of scene, but you know, ultimately, you're always thinking. You know, you want the, ter- the the reader to turn the page. You want them to keep going. You want them to send you an email the following morning and complain because they stayed up to two a.m. <laughs> they couldn't put the book down. You get that, and it's great, and it's always the, you know, it's always a a, a really really cool thing. But as to how I do that, like it's. So it's at that point now where I don't really think about it anymore. It's just how I how I write. Yeah, it's just how how you you do it. Yeah, I felt that another way that the story remains so dynamic is that, um, and I don't know whether this is done on purpose, but the narrative alternates between the um, character. Cameron, who's the crime writer, in the first person, and then you've got the third person view of um, DI Rebecca Kent, and um, so it's kind of back and forth, and I, I felt that that kept things really pacey. Yeah, it's actually something I've done, I think, in, in many, I don't think all of the books, where I'll have a first person character 
and then third person other characters. So you, you're predominantly with the first person one who will have maybe like 60 or 70 percent of the book, and, and you kind of intersperse it with with one or two others. It's um, it's a really cool thing that uh, that I like seeing in books. It's something that I've I've always um, done. Uh, but weirdly enough, with that book, and I've had others, like Blood Men is another example of it. Um, the Cleaner was another example. The whole book was written with only the one character, only the, the first-person character. Uh, and then you get to the end of the book and you go, wow, oh, there's something there's something missing here. There's, you know, and, but it's, it's not the normal. It's not normally how, how people would write. But uh, And it was the same with this one here where I, I wrote the book and it, it came up short. And I thought I think it needs something else. And I thought, well, maybe I can give um, give you know Rebecca Kent her own chapters, and she's a character from other books. She and is. She, she is somebody I'd been wanting to write from her perspective for uh, for a while. And I thought, you know what, this is this is it. Give her her chapters, and then that brought the whole investigation into the book, and it became a very a very different thing. Oh right, oh that's that's interesting. And then of course you've got um, Cameron's inner voice that pops up throughout the book. Mm. His and, author voice, yeah. Yes, um, and the sort of anxious um, voice that's that's sort of saying, oh, no, this is going to go horribly wrong kind of thing. Yeah, he, um, he, I think he calls him Mr. What If. Oh, Mr. That, what If, that's right. Yeah, because that's what you do as a crime writer. Like when his, when his son first goes missing and he's like, like he loses sight of him and he's like, what if someone's taken him? What if he's been put into the, into the back of a van right now? And it becomes this thing through the book. It's always like, what if, what if? And um, and that's kind of what what a crime writer does. Like when you're trying to come up with an idea, it's like, well, what if you if this happens? Or what if I, you know? So, so that's actually, you know, you can always say that's what my job is. Like when I sit down, and I, it's always about the what if. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. that, that makes so much sense, yeah. Now, um... Other popular crime thrillers like the the Lee Child books, for example, they're really plot driven, um, and and that gives them those really fast paced, gripping storylines. But I kind of see your books as being very character driven as well, um, because I feel as though we really get to know the characters with their their flaws, flaws and all. Um, and I wondered if this was. A deliberate technique on your part to to really flesh out your characters. Yeah, it's something I always do. Like I've read um, some books, not Lee's, but um, I mean I do read Lee's books, but I, I wouldn't say his a um, in this example. But I have read some some books that are just purely plot driven and are fast and are fun, but you do, you don't come out of it with anything. Um, whereas, uh, and I remember Lee said this to me once actually years ago. He was saying. Uh, when you read a um, a crime novel, it's often like a, like a year later, someone will go, "What was that book about?" And you don't really remember the plot as well as you remember the characters. So I always want to have characters who, you know, a year or two after the book, you will still be thinking, "I wonder what ever happened to that guy." You know, where are they now? So I, I always uh, flesh the characters out. It doesn't always happen in a first draft or a second draft, but. You know, as you as you go through the through the rewrites, you just try to put a bit more of of them in there. A reason for what they're doing, you know, just just make them more three dimensional, right? Um, relatable. Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. And um, when we're talking about plot, um, I was going to ask you that when you begin writing a novel, do you map it all out on first, like on a giant big whiteboard or a spreadsheet or or do you just start writing and kind of let the characters and the setting guide you? 
Yeah, there are two. two yeah, I mean, both those ways are uh, like, like I, all, out of all the authors I know, probably half of them do it one way, half of them do it the other. Um, I do it the way where I got no idea what's going on. So I will just come up with an idea for either an opening chapter or a character, and then you just go, okay, let's just see where it goes. So at any given point, you kind of have an idea over the following maybe two or three chapters. Um, but it all, it's, uh, it's, it's cool in the sense that you get the surprise because you don't know what's coming up and you, know, you get to sort of be there for it. But it's difficult in the sense that you can get stuck very quickly. It's like, oh, I don't know what to do here. Um, yeah, I guess you could reach a, a dead end and um, think, oh, that's not going to work. Or... Well, it happens all the time. And, uh, and, and generally what happens is you'll, you'll reach a dead end and you'll go, okay, there's something wrong here. Um, and you'll sort of go back five or 10,000 words and where your character went one way, you'll go, okay, what if they do this instead? You know, again, the what ifs. That's the what ifs, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. you've gotten it wrong. Um, you know, I know um, like Lee Todd, for example, and Stephen King, for example, both those guys don't plot. They just sit down and go, let's just see what happens. Oh, right. Oh, that's that's very interesting. Whereas yeah. like Jeffrey Deaver, for example, he will have, I think he spends about six months just planning stuff and he will have that sort of whiteboard, corkboard thing in his office with, you know, everything pinned up everywhere and all these connections. And, and then when he actually writes the book, it's a very quick process. Oh, right. Oh, that that's super interesting. Now, um, we were talking about the character um, Detective Inspector Rebecca Kent in in this novel um, and that um, as a recurring character because she'd been um, injured in the line of duty in a, an earlier book, hadn't she? And, yep. And you sort of told us how that you decided to to put her into this one to add, add a bit more to it. But um, I was sort of wanting to ask you how you'd make that decision about having your earlier characters popping in to your later story or or how do you decide which one is going to pop in? Uh, I think it's just being lazy. It's like I can either have to com- you know, completely create somebody new or I can go, you know what, let's just grab this person from this book. They, they need a turn, um, which, is, which is partly true, but also... When you start populating the books with, because uh, you know it's a, it's a small city, and when you start populating them with the with sort of background characters, it, it just it connects them all, and it's kind of fun as a reader when you go, oh hey, I, I know I know that guy, you know, even if it's just a very small character, it's always just a it's, it's fun, and and Kent particularly was a character who I really liked. Um, because of you know she's in I think three or four books, yeah, and she became you know she's quite has. The, the quiet people is her. It's her outing. Like it's her her turn to to shine, and she's in the, in the next one too. I'm I'm working on one at the moment, which is over half done, and she's um she's one of the leads in in that again. So she's going to be my go to person for a while, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's that's good. It gives something to look forward to because I find her a, a wonderful character, and I think kind of um, by having the, the recurring characters, I think as a re- reader you develop a relationship with them. So it it really, buy, you know, you, you get a real buy-in to the story. Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah. And then you, you start developing, um, you know, their, their, their circle, like, you know, what's going on in their lives, their friends, their family, you know, their, their house, so just little things to make them more of a, you, you flesh them out. 
you know, in the previous books, they were just there to sort of push the story along, uh, they were a vehicle, but now it's like, okay, well, let's, let's introduce this, uh, this person to the world. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, well, I'm really looking forward to reading more um, about DI Rebecca Kent. Now, um, Paul, I've got some questions to ask about you, yourself, the writer. Did you always want to be a writer? Yeah, always, always since I was a little kid. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's that thing where you, it's, it's almost like saying you want to be Batman, you know. Yeah. Like you have this idea what you want to do, but it's it's not realistic. And it's it's not like you're at school and you go, hey, I want to be a novelist growing up. It's not like the teachers are going to go, yeah, you you do that, you know, because it's, it's, uh, it just doesn't kind of happen. But, uh, you know, but it was when I was, when I was 19, you know, when a friend said to me at the time, if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? And I was like, oh, you know, I'd be a be a writer. And uh, they said, well, why don't you, why don't you actually just do it? And I was like, oh, that's a that's an interesting question. Why don't I? So I I did. I just started writing um, straight away. You know, I think that next day I started writing a horror novel, uh, and, and I wrote a bunch of them too until I wrote the cleaner. Like I think I wrote like seven or eight kind of really horrible um, horrible efforts, which. Uh, which you know no one will ever see, but uh, it was. But it gets you there. Like I mean, you can't. It's it's all about the experience and learning, and uh, you know. So yes, always and still, you know, it's all I want to do. You still want to do? Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a pity, um, really, that teachers. Of, well, probably some do, but in general, you know, if you said to your English teacher, "I want to be a writer." You usually are not going to get a huge amount of encouragement. Yeah, that, that would say that. You know, you need a plan A and you do plan B as a hobby sort of thing. So yes. Just, you know, it's, it's hard to, to make a living from it. Yeah. It's a bit like people say, well, do your accountancy degree first and then you can yeah. write in your spare time or... Exactly. Yeah. 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 Don't give up your day job. Yeah. Yeah, which is probably well-meaning um, often, but it can be a bit... It's not very encouraging, is it? Exactly. Yeah. So... Um, what would you say were early influences on your writings? I'm kind of wondering about favourite authors that you would have had when you were younger. Oh, uh, boy. You know, I really cannot remember that far back as far as what I was reading as a teenager. Like, it was always just sort of um, more adventure novels. Like, I wasn't reading crime. I actually didn't read a crime novel until I, until I was, you know, in my mid-20s, I guess, almost 30. Uh, I was always just reading adventure stuff and then you know when I was a school kid when I came out of that and I started um, sort of like my adult life uh, I spent the first four or five years reading only Stephen King right yeah yeah I mean as soon as I I read his uh, his collection at the time everything he had you know and then I was like 22, 23 and I was like okay what else is there and that's when you start um, looking okay who else writes horror because it's all I did was horror Mm. it's what I wanted to read and then uh, there's a show on Netflix at the moment I don't know if you know it but it's called Mindhunter and it's about um, it's it's kind of a, sort of a fictionalised version of, of real events with these uh, guys who created the FBI Behavioural Science Unit back in the 70s they drove around all these prisons and they were interviewing uh, real life serial killers which sort of helped them build up a database uh, so in a sense that Everyone who makes it, who does a profile now, comes back to what these folks learned, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, and I, and when I was in my mid twenties, 
I remember, uh, or actually a little bit before that, I, I found those books. Um, this is like in the late 90s, early 2000s. I found those books that this Netflix show was based on, and I read them, and I realized this is, you know, this crime stuff is real horror, you know. And so I switched then from to, from writing horror to writing crime because that's kind of how I spare. Like if you lose a loved one to a, to a homicide, you know, that's horror. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah. so I guess more than anything, sorry, that that the part of the books that influenced me the most as to, to as to what I write now. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because there's that true crossover, really, isn't there, between horror and and crime, probably depending on your point of view or or what your experience is. Um, Now, you're someone who's always enjoyed travelling overseas um, before the um, pandemic, of course. Um, Have you been missing that, missing getting away from New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. I'm normally away around about... 10 to 12 weeks a year and so last year was the first time I haven't um, haven't travelled in, uh, in, in many many years um, so it was it was tough and I had a big year last year planned as well including you know China and Israel and Morocco and oh. Norway I was going to Machu Picchu and Brazil and it was you know I had a, a cruise planned in the uh, Caribbean it was going to be awesome and of course it all fell apart and it ended up spending like a couple of months last year, battling with um, airlines and uh, and travel agents and uh, and man, it was just a nightmare. The amount of times travel agents and, and airlines would just blatantly lie to you. It was uh, it was a horrible experience. But but you know that's um, you know, aside. But uh, but yeah, I miss I miss the travel. You know, I don't know when I'll get away again. I'm hoping next year. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a big part of the job. You go to festivals. Um, you know, you sign books. You meet people. You you hang out with your author friends and et cetera. And it's all you know. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's great that we're here in New Zealand. Like, I mean, safest country in the world, I think. And so I'm, you know, in some ways you can't complain. But I do miss, you know, those those other things. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I bet you do because they they are part of the job, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, I've been thinking that um, when you write these sort of dark psychological thrillers that, that you do, that you're so good at, it, it must be very draining. And I'm wondering how you take care of your own well-being while you're writing. And I guess um, travel could have been part of, of that. Um, but is, is this where the, the frisbee comes in handy? Yeah, I mean, I try to I try to stay um, like in, in shape a little bit. So yeah, I'm at the gym three or four days a week, and you know I go running a couple of times a week if I if I can. So that that helps me unwind. Um, but generally, uh, I'm okay. Like I mean, it's just writing is tiring. Like sitting in your office for eight hours a day, just putting words on a page is draining. Uh, but as far as the actual draining, because it's you know it's it's quite psychologically dark. That doesn't really affect me in, in that way. I, I can, you know, I just, I, I don't look at it like that. I just look at it as a, as a job. Um, the same way, like, if I watch a horror movie or a crime movie, you know, I sort of, they don't have any effect on me anymore because I just go, well, I can just picture, but, you know, once you see behind the curtain, you know, that's all you all you see from now on. So, um, so when, when I'm writing a book, it's just like, okay, uh, so I'm in dark mode now, and then six o'clock, seven o'clock rolls around, I'll be like, all right, let's go watch Seinfeld or something. So right. Just, yeah. You know, so it's just, out of, 
Yeah, so it's just another day at the office, really, for yeah. you. Yeah, well, and I enjoy it. And it's, it's weird because I know you're writing the darkest kind of stuff, but I enjoy doing it. So uh, I, I don't, I don't have any kind of kind of issue. And um, you know, I don't hear any voices or anything. So <laughs> until that happens, so I'll keep doing it. Yeah. Oh no, it seems to be working well. So um, I was going to ask you how you'd structure a, a typical writing day, um, and you. Um, so would you be sitting at a desk for? Eight hours, or, uh, that, which does sound exhausting. Yeah, I have been lately. It depends on on where you're at uh, and what stage of a of a book. Like I started a book, uh, a new book, um, last month, and it's been going really well. It's over halfway now in four weeks, which is quite good. Wow. But I'm in, but I'm I'm writing like I'm in the office like eight hours, ten hours a day, just going for it. So, uh, but then. You know, when it's done, I can basically take six months off or nine months off to do other things, you know, gardening, reading, whatever. You're always coming back for editing but and other things, in which case you're in the office for like an hour or two a day. But um, there's, no, there's no real structure normally. It's just, uh, you know, get up. If it's a gym day, go to the gym, come home, then, then write. If it's not a gym day, get up, have breakfast, write, you know. Uh, you know, there's that thing when your when your hobby becomes your job as well. It's it's pretty cool. Like you you want to do it. Yeah. Oh, I, yes. I know that with my own work too. Sometimes it doesn't really feel like going to work because it's such a cool. <laughs> you're doing such a cool thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you work every day. Like when this new book, I've been. I think I'm at day. 27 or 28 in a row now where it's eight hours a day but it's fine like I I want to do it so I don't I don't think oh my god I want time off it's like no I don't I just want to you know like I sort of say no to all my friends whatever they want to do I'm not socializing I'm not doing much um just just get back into the book because it's a momentum thing for me which things are going well like I gotta stick with it as soon as I get stuck um, or don't do a day or two of work, then then I'm done. Then it can take me months to get back into it. So right, just, yeah. Just, while it's there, go for just it. Just go for it, yeah. Now, Paul, I've noticed some other things about your your books because they're bestsellers, and you've been translated into about twenty languages. It seems. Um, what I notice um, in your writing, there are a few American terms that that come through. So I'm wondering if you're writing for an American audience or is this just an example of the, the evolution of, of New Zealand English? Uh, it's, not, it's, it's not that at all. I, I think there's, there's two things it could be. It could be that you're reading an American version. Oh, um, okay. Uh, because so what, um, so what used to happen is when my primary publisher was New Zealand for the first four books and everything was written in, you know, with British English and, and that was fine, then when my American publisher became my primary publisher, then everything got written in American English. Um, so not just the spelling, but the, the terminology Some as well. Some of the well. terms, yeah. And, and so, the, so all the American books have that. Then when um, the book came out here, it was re-edited to, um, to get rid of those Americanisms and, and go back into to British English. But there's always going to be a couple of things that don't get caught, that, that slip through because, you know, it's, it's 120,000 words there, so you can't get it, get it all back to New Zealand. Um, I mean, you, you do your best. You always hope that you, you get them all, but it's, you know, there'll be some. So it could be that that's what's happened, where you've read a couple of things where it's, it's slipped through, or it could be that you're actually just reading the American oh, version. Oh, right, yeah. And I mean, our languages um, are really 
collider or, you know, we're getting closer and closer to the American English anyway, aren't we? So Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But people people get upset about it though. Like I mean I've you know, uh, so many emails or messages over the last few years where people uh, get really abusive um, about it. Like one woman was, she said she was punching her pillow. Another guy said that his dad would be ashamed of me for selling out and he would roll in his grave oh. <laughs> kind of stuff. And, and you just write back and you go, yeah, because you've, you know, you've bought it from Amazon or, or, right. or something. Or, so that's. It's different, yeah. Yeah, well, that'll teach you for buying um, from Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should have bought local. Yeah, yes. people are pretty good. Once, once I've explained to them, it makes sense. Like, yeah, yes. for every market you want it to be catered for that for that market. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, this is so interesting. Look, Paul, I, I feel as though I could keep um, talking to you for another half an hour, but we're, we're pretty much at the end of our, our session today. So it's been so good having you on here. Um, I've been speaking uh, with Paul Cleave about his new book, The Quiet People. Look, it's a compelling, suspenseful and riveting thriller, and it's going to leave you stunned, I can guarantee it. So look, I highly recommend that people buy a copy or, or two or three from their local bookstore. Thanks for your time today, Paul, and all the best for this book. Thanks, Alison. Thank you. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in today. Haere rā, kakite anō. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day.